Go ahead, turn your Bible to Revelation 13. We didn't meet last week because um, David Sproul was here and everybody was in the auditorium. But two weeks ago, we were in Revelation 13. And we got through verse 5, but I figured what I would do just to make it easier for everybody is just to go back to the top of 13 and just start in chapter 1. The goal is to finish 14 today. I won't spend a bunch of time in chapter 13, but I do want us to just reacquaint ourselves with what was going on there and then finish out the chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first four verses of Revelation 13, and then we'll get started. Now, the handout you have is for chapter 14, so you won't be writing unless you've got the old handout until we get to chapter 14. All right. Revelation 13, starting in verse 1, it says, This is John. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and it had ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So, last week we started to identify who the beast was. There will be two of these, but... The beast comes out of the sea, and in the book of Revelation, the sea represents tumult, it represents conflict, it represents opposition to God. There is a passage in Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, the wicked is like the troubled sea when it can't rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And that's why at the end of Revelation, in chapter 21, John sees this great city, and then he says, I saw no more sea. He's basically saying, I saw no more opposition. He's not saying, hey, once you get to heaven, there won't be any water or anything like that. John's talking about this opposition that's depicted as the sea a lot of times in the Bible. And then this beast resembles a beast that we see in the book of Daniel. It talks about this beast having, um, let's see how he exactly says it in verse 2. Yeah, the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like the mouth of a lion. This beast comes from the book of Daniel, and in the book of Daniel it represents several kingdoms, but here John just uses it to describe what you see going on with Rome. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and the beast was given authority. Look at verse 2. Where did the beast get its authority? From the dragon, and that dragon is from Revelation chapter 12, 9, and 10. So if the beast represents the Roman Empire... John wants his audience to know that the devil is actually the one behind the persecution that they're facing from Rome. Throughout this section, you'll see, especially when we get to verses 5 and 7, he was given this, and he was given that. So this beast, the Roman Empire, though it's causing all of this havoc and turmoil for Christians, is being funneled through what the devil is doing and what the beast is doing as his servant. The whole world marvels at the beast. That's verse 3. Um, the whole earth marvels and worships the beast, and they worship the dragon in verse 4. The beast receives worship, and then they ask this question or have this chant in verse 4, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And we talked about this the last time we were in class, but that statement, who is like the beast and who can, work, who can fight against it, is a statement that Israel would often make about God. They say this about God in Exodus 15, 11, when they come out of the Red Sea. Who is like our God? There's no God like him. Hannah has this terminology in her song after she gives birth to Samuel in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 22. But now you have the inhabitants of the earth taking those words that are only true about God and attributing them to the sea beast and saying, the beast is so powerful. Roman's empire is so magnificent. Who can fight against it and who's like it? All right, let's go to Revelation 13. Let's read 5 through 10. 
And like I said, I'm just trying to get us reoriented into what's going on in chapter 13 so we'll be ready for 14. So, so far, we see the sea beast, which represents Rome, is given great power. Everybody on the earth worships the beast, and they don't believe the beast can be defeated. Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, if you've got the New King James or the King James, your verse 8 reads differently. And I think your verse is right, by the way. We'll talk about why I think the New King James and the King James translate verse 8 better than the ESV and the New American Standard. Some other translations. Verse 9, though, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone who is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, he must be slain with it. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. All right, so from verse 5 down through verse 10, what is the image that John has of the beast? What do you see taking place here? How would you describe the beast's interaction with the earth in verses 5, really down through verse number 8? What do you see taking place? I'd say domination. That's the word I was thinking, Bobby. He's pretty dominant, or appears to be. Um, if you notice, it says, he utters blasphemy, he's allowed to make war on the saints, and to do various things. What does the Bible mean when it talks about blasphemy? What does blasphemy mean? And who is this beast blaspheming against? It's in verse 6, by the way. When it says that you blaspheme, what does that mean? An ungodly comment, yes. To speak against is what blasphemy means. And in verse 6, who is the beast speaking against? And? All right. His name, his dwelling, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So who do you think that incorporates? Of course, that's God, obviously. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But who else is the beast hurling out accusations against, probably, in the book of Revelation? The church, Christians. You think God cares about that? What happened to Saul when Saul was persecuting the church? Jesus meets him, Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? But go back to Acts chapter 8. Go to Acts chapter 8. And let's notice what the Bible actually says Saul was doing. Because Luke tells us in Acts 8 specifically what it was that Saul was doing. Acts chapter 8 and um, let's see, verse number... Well, we'll just go to Acts 8 and verse 1 and then Acts 9 and verse 1. Look at Acts 8 and 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now look over at Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. But Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against who? The disciples of the Lord. So why would Jesus say when he shows up, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He takes it personally. What else? Because I think there's a word of warning for us, too, even though we're Christians and members of the church. What do passages like this teach us about our relationship to God? What we do to the church, we do to who? God. See, he says, why are you persecuting me? So if you love the church, we sing a song, I love your kingdom, Lord. It's a reflection of our love toward God. When Saul was persecuting the church, it was as if he was persecuting Jesus himself. And the sea beast rises up, and yes, Revelation 13, 6, blasphemes against God and his dwelling, but also those who dwell on the earth. And so the persecution they're suffering 
It's as if the beast is persecuting God himself. And so we should just be careful how we talk about the church. I don't know. You couldn't get away with this if you told a man, you know, sometimes people think this about the church. I love Jesus, but not the church. It's like saying to a man, I really like you, but not your wife. Don't bring her around. That's not going to work out really good, especially if the husband goes along with that, by the way. It's not going to work out good for him. But spiritually speaking, to think to ourselves, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Jesus and the church are described as being linked together in a way that they can't be separated. And so this persecution is against Jesus as well. The beast, notice what it says. He's not just allowed to persecute the saints, but what does verse 7 say he's allowed to do? Yeah, he's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer the saints or overcome them. Making war with them is expected, but what do you think it means when it says he's allowed to conquer them? And why does God let something like this happen? Persecuting the saints, we've seen this in Revelation, but I think this is the first time where it says he's able to overcome them or conquer them. So God's letting the first century Christians be persecuted by the beast. He's got great power and authority. He's been given this power and authority by the dragon. But it's not just opposition. There's a sense in which at least it appears for a time that they're overcoming conquered. Why would God allow something like that to happen? And what does it mean that they're conquered by the beast? Shaking your head is not an answer. Y'all are like, yeah, that's what it says. Yeah. Why would he let them conquer? Why would he let the beast conquer his people? Well, always operates on its own time schedule. So I think the idea here is that um, we look before about the judgments that God brings against Rome, and they have been partial in order to produce repentance. So when he's he's allowing them to conquer and persecute and overcome, he's basically giving them the opportunity they can still turn back or they can fill up their measure. Okay. Yeah, so we'll get more to Rome like they're just basically setting themselves up for destruction. In chapter 14, he'll talk about the wrath of the winepress of God. It'll eventually come back on them. That's good. Andrew? Kind of going off what Amy said. Uh, it's like Job when he lost everything. It's like the test of faith. Yeah. So overcoming and making sure you stay of faith uh, through the persecution. You can see that uh, earlier in Revelation. You can see that the address of the different churches, you know, long endurance, long suffering. Does God deliver his people, yes or no? Yes. When? All the time, you say? Would you say God always delivers? True or false? God always delivers. Whenever I ask you yes or no, true or false, it's probably a trap. But maybe. I don't, know about, I don't know about this time just yet. Does God always deliver? Yes or no? Yes. Somebody says yes. I think Psalm 34 is on your side if you say yes. Psalm 34, verse 19, he delivers his people out of every trouble. Does God always deliver his people like we want to be delivered? No. No. In his time. But not just his time, his way. Sometimes it appears we lose here. Revelation 2.13 says, Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain. Antipas died. God didn't do a thing to stop it. I don't know why, and nobody can tell us the answer to this. In Acts chapter 12, the church was praying. Herod wanted to do the Jews a favor, and so he killed James, cut off his head with the sword. He wanted to do the same thing to Peter. What happens to Peter in Acts chapter 12? Angel breaks him out of jail. He comes to his senses, goes to Mary's house. Churches gathered there praying. Acts 12 and verse 12. Peter goes on to live, write two epistles. Question, why did God save Peter and not James? Nobody knows. Surely the church was praying as hard for James as they were for Peter. And yet, God in his sovereign will says, James, 
You go, Peter. You stay. Sometimes God lets, and I'll just put conquer or overcome in quotes, but never think to yourself, this couldn't be the will of God because if it was, it would have worked out in this life the way I wanted it to. Faithful people of God are sometimes in this life, just because of the circumstances, overcome by the wicked one. And God allows it to be so for reasons that we might not know. But always remember, and we've said this several times in the book of Revelation, just because you and I don't have a good reason for why we would think God would allow suffering to take place doesn't mean there isn't one. If you say that, then you're saying, well, you're sovereign and you know better than God, and you don't. Just because you and I can't see a good reason of why God would do X and not Y doesn't mean there's not a good reason. Right? And so we need to accept that. Russell? Show up and rescue us. When's God going to let it happen, Tommy? In the end of verse ten, it says, "Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints." Maybe it teaches endurance. There's going to be some of that in fourteen twelve as well. Yeah, there needs to be endurance. And again, the Christians aren't losing just because they're suffering physical death. In the end, they'll be victorious. I just think it's interesting here that John says God actually allows them to be conquered at least temporarily because the beast is causing all this destruction it also says the beast is causing this destruction in the earth but just because you're a christian doesn't mean you're going to be shielded from the hardships of life any more than anybody else not necessarily sometimes our hardships are enhanced because we're christians and so we just need to make sure we approach christianity from the right vantage point or else we'll be disappointed and frustrated with god we'll think the bible says god delivers he does but he doesn't always do it the way that we want and sometimes if we're honest that makes us mad. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The Psalms are filled with people that were frustrated because God didn't do things exactly like they wanted them to. But they always end praising God because they say, you're wise, you're God, I'm not. But I sure wish you would have done it this way. And that's okay. To feel that way just means you're a human. But we do have to accept his will. All right, so they're overcome by the beast. This is the dominating scene. Then there's verse 8. Can somebody with the King James or New King James read verse 8 after I read it in the ESV? I think the way this is translated kind of makes a difference. So the ESV has, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the beast. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so the ESV, and I think the New American Standard does this too, they have people's names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. But the King James and New King James put the focus on this foundation of the world on Jesus. Somebody read the King James or New King James, please. All who dwell on, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the King James and New King James, I just think they handle the Greek better. They're saying Jesus is slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus' death to save us was predestined. The ESV says, basically, people's names were written in the book before the foundation of the world. And the Bible does talk about people being predestined as a collective group, but it also talks about people's names being what out of the book of life if you don't keep your act together? 
blotted out. And so I don't know how much security would be provided for people by saying, hey, your name's in the book from the foundation of the world. It could be blotted out. I think the New King James handles it better, and they say Jesus was slain for us from the foundation of the world. And then, as Tommy mentioned a moment ago, this section ends by saying Christians are to be faithful and patient and endure to the end. All right, let's finish chapter 13, verses 11 down through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So we saw the sea beast. This is sometimes called the land beast. This other one. So chapter 12 and 13 is like a false trinity. The Christian trinity is father. What's the second? Son. Revelation kind of flips this upside down. The false trinity is dragon, sea beast, and then land beast. They've got three mascots, if you will, of their own. Verse 11 is the third of these three. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. This section is the famous mark of the beast section. What is this all about? Um, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, so John saw a second beast coming out of the earth. This beast is different from the first. He doesn't really want attention for himself. What does this beast want to try to get everybody in the world to do? Worship the first beast. Worship the empire of Rome or possibly engage in some sort of emperor worship. And so if the first beast is the Roman Empire, the second beast may very well be the emperors of Rome themselves. Domitian, not all, but some Roman emperors wanted to be worshipped as God. And they would say, praise me, I'm divine. And so maybe that's what this beast is after is he's trying to point people toward the Roman Empire and worship. The second beast calls for others to worship the first beast. And then it says he performs signs and wonders. Question. If somebody was able to perform signs and wonders, just be thinking about being a first century Christian, how would you know not to follow this individual? I mean, sometimes people will say this today. Well, the miraculous age has ceased, and I agree with that. And it might be followed up. A member of the church or Christian may follow that statement up with something like this. Well, you don't have power. You don't have miraculous power because you can't raise the dead or you can't do some miraculous sign. But if you did do some miraculous sign, then what? Then what? If you could do a miraculous sign, what would that mean about your message? Your message is? True. No, that's not right. In the Bible, the Bible teaches that sometimes people could do false signs. There would be two criteria. Go to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, I think, helps us out with this in the Old Testament. It talks about sometimes a person doing a sign. And if we said, well, if somebody raised somebody from the dead, then I would know. Or if you could heal somebody... Well, there'll be two criteria. One, if you did a sign, but two, the person doing the sign has to have a message that's consistent with the truth. Just because you did a sign, if you could do one, and your message was contrary to the truth that God revealed, you would be unworthy of being followed. The miraculous isn't the end-all, be-all. People say that. Well, if you could do a sign, but if you said something out of line with God's word, 
it would just be a deceiving sign or a false one. Look at what Moses says in Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, it doesn't say a fake one, it's a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonderer that he tells you comes to pass, so he does a miracle. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you will not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You will walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you will serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams will be put to death because he taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, you'll purge the evil from your midst. So what does Moses say? If somebody does a sign and then they tell you to follow after other gods, then what should you do? Rebel against it. If somebody did a miracle today and then they said, now listen, I'm going to tell you, all you have to do to be saved is repeat after me and say this prayer, you know they're misleading you. No matter what sign they did, that's not what the Bible teaches. If a message is not consistent with truth that God's given, doesn't matter if a person does a sign. 2 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 says that God allows some people to be deceived by signs because they receive not a love of the truth. That means if you want to believe a lie, God will just provide all the proof that you need to keep you going that way. God doesn't deceive people, but some people hate truth and God says, well, if you want to go that way, I'll just let you go that way. But Christians in Revelation 13 wouldn't have been able to say, well, the beast did signs. Of course we followed him. Yeah, but about the time he started saying, worship Caesar as Lord, you should have been tipped off that this isn't the message that God wants you to receive. And so the beast does signs, and some people follow the beast, but the Christians couldn't do that. Everyone then, it says, has to receive a mark on their hand or on their forehead. There's a lot said about this mark of the beast. I've read so many things before I was a Christian and since becoming one about what people think it is. Chips in your credit card, are you marked, right? I've heard all kinds of vaccine. People have said all sorts of things. Throughout the Bible, or especially in Revelation, there's this idea of the Christians. How are the Christians protected in Revelation 7? They were what? Sealed in their forehead. Are you sealed as a Christian today? Are we sealed today? Okay, so you should be thinking. Can anybody see the seal that Christians have today, right now? Can we see it visibly? So there will be nothing to necessarily assume that the mark that these people were receiving was anything visible either. Now there's some stuff in church history about the third century people had to have these certificates that they, they performed the rites of worship to the emperor. And without that, you couldn't buy or sell. Maybe that's starting up here, but that's 300 years after John wrote. So far as we can tell, this isn't a physical mark as much as it is an identifying mark that you follow the beast. Whether it was physical or not, Christians could not receive this mark and be pleasing to God. But what's the consequences for not receiving this mark? You couldn't do what? You couldn't buy or sell. And what else would happen to us? Yeah, they would be slain. At the end of verse 15, it says, they might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so everybody had to receive this mark or else be slain. And then he says at the end of 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666, which is just the number that symbolizes imperfection. In the book of Revelation, the number seven symbolizes what? Perfection or completeness. And then the number six would be appearing to be like that, but just short of that. And you see this throughout. Look at verse number, oh, go back up to verse 11. 
It says, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a what? But it spoke like a dragon. Who's the lamb in the book of Revelation? Oh, this beast looks like Jesus, but talks like a like a dragon. Like the deceiver, Revelation 12, 9, and 10. This mark looks like it's going to provide everything you need, but it just falls short. 666. There's the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then there's dragon, sea beast, and lamb beast. This mark of 666 isn't a real physical mark. It's not anything that anybody can give us today, or I even think give them back then. It was just a symbolizing way of saying you have aligned yourself with Rome. And there might have been a lot of ways that this was done. Some people talk about the Romans coming into people's house with a little bust of sorts. And in the first century, if you were a Christian, they'd just break into your home. And everybody had to offer some incense and say, Caesar is curious. Caesar is Lord. You do that, they move forward and they go to the next house. You know, Roman guards, if they did that, went to plenty of pagan people's houses that worshipped all kinds of gods. They did that sort of thing, no problem. And then you come to a Christian's home and they tell you to do that. What's your response? What if we're going to take your children or take your property or kill your spouse? And they say, just do this. I mean, there's a lot of gods. Jesus is one in the pantheon of gods. Just go along with it. And a Christian had to say, Christ is curious. Jesus is Lord. And just couldn't go along with it. Couldn't receive the mark, even at great cost to them. And I think this may be a part of this allowing Christians to be conquered and allowing Christians to suffer. But if you're going to be God's person, you couldn't go along with this. Question, is there anything similar to the mark sort of thing happening today? Where you've got to go along with this. And if you don't, there'll be consequences. Absolutely. Like what, Bobby? Politics. Politics, potentially, yeah. There could be some of that, and there could be some issues in politics that spring forth. Anything more specific? You mean like woke culture? What was that? Woke. Could be woke culture. You know, there have been people that have had their businesses shut down because they say, look, I'm a Christian. Anybody in the world can make you a cake. I can't make you a cake for a homosexual marriage because I'm a Christian. And they're basically saying, receive the mark or else. There have been whole teams where they say, look, we're all wearing these little badges, and if you don't, get, if you don't do it, you can't play or you're going to be fined or you've got to walk that statement back. You've got to apologize. Revelation was written about things in the first century, but the beast still rages. And he says, accept the mark. Just go along with everybody else. Just do it this one time. And if you don't do it, we'll pressure you. We'll make you so socially awkward. We'll put you at odds with everybody so much so that eventually, hopefully, you'll just cave in. A man wrote a book about the sexual revolution in our country. And he called it the ram effect and about how basically it's the bull rush effect. They just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And over time, first it's sin, it's ungodly. Then it's just a lifestyle I don't prefer. I wouldn't do it. And over time, it's like, well, God's going to judge people. Who am I to say? And hopefully we just let our guard down over time and just give in. We read about people in Revelation and Christians that stood against opposition but we really all do want to be liked. We want to be accepted. And it's hard to go against the crowd. It's hard to go against what everybody else is doing. And we have to do it in love, in gentleness, and kindness. But we can't receive the mark. We can't just go along with what everybody else is doing. Diane? Uh, when they were requiring everyone to have a vaccination, that I had, said something to do with what you're saying. Do I think that when they were... Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think this has to deal with the vaccine. I know some people have said that. Um... I just think this is more about, now again, I think our government can try to make people do things that are ungodly and would fall into this realm. I wouldn't necessarily put the vaccine in this same category specifically. I think John's talking about something specific, but there are things that happen in our world where they're saying, hey, if you don't do this, 
then you're going to be out of step with the majority culture, and it has to do with some ungodliness. But I wouldn't put the COVID vaccine in there necessarily. Any other questions on the mark of the beast or anything in Revelation 13? All right, let's do the hearing and keeping part of Revelation 13, and then we'll go into we'll go into 14. Number one, the beast rarely looks like a beast, but it often looks like a beauty. The way John describes the beast with the crowns and the the diadems on his head in verse 1. I, most people in the Roman Empire probably didn't see this beast as being violent or being a threat. And the same thing's true in our world. Don't be fooled. 1 John 4 and verse 1 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Number two, the multitude is not always right. Don't follow the crowd. Follow the truth. Who was worshiping the beast according to John in Revelation 13? How many people? The whole what? The whole world. Don't follow the majority. Truth does not abide with the majority, and truth doesn't abide with the minority. Don't say, well, we're right because we're small in number. God doesn't favor the majority or the minority. God favors the truth. Truth is right if everybody believes it or if nobody believes it. Just follow wherever the... Be honest enough to follow wherever the evidence leads. Don't say, well, all the people are going over here. We're right. And I know some other people, they're like, well, there are only three of us. I know we're right because it says, few there be that find it. And there's one, two, three. So that's, a, that's not right either. Truth is truth. Proverbs 23, 23, buy the truth and refuse to sell it, and wisdom and instruction and understanding. Here's the next one. Everybody in the world has a mark, and this is true. You either are sealed by God, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, or you're sealed by the beast. Everybody in the world is sealed, one way or the other. Everybody in the world is marked. Everybody says, I align with God, or I align with the opposition on this side. And if you don't know what mark you have, well, that about settles it for you. And God's saying, I want you to make sure that you receive the right one. Next, the reign of the beast is short, Revelation 13, 5. But the reign of God is forever, Revelation 5, 13. Instead of choosing to be relevant, we should choose to be eternal. Instead of saying, well, this is what's popular. This is what everybody's doing right now. Choose to be eternal. Sometimes God lets his people lose. God will reverse everything the enemy does. Sometimes we are conquered temporarily. <coughs> But we just need to make sure that we know in the end with God we'll win. Remember, compromise is costly. Philippians 1.29 says, It's given to us in behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. What does the Bible say? Be faithful unto what? Death. Death. Not until disaster. You know, some people are faithful unto disaster. They're faithful all the way up until something really, really bad happens. And then... Well, I just can't stick with Christianity anymore. But Jesus didn't call us to be faithful until disaster. He says, be faithful unto death, or even as death hovers over you. Even if it costs you your life to be faithful, you do it. And that's what these Christians are facing. And then the last one is, God's been planning out redemption before the foundation of the world. And that's Revelation 13, 8. The Lamb is slain. And we can have our names written in the book if we follow His will. All right, chapter 14. Revelation 14 is the reverse of what's going on in 13. This is good news for the Christians. Let's read Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with the 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. 
and in their mouth was found no lie because they are blameless. So we've seen the devil and those working in his service. And now in Revelation 14, after you saw the beast standing on the earth, the, the lamb stands on Mount Zion. In the Bible, and we sing a lot of songs about Mount Zion, but where is Mount Zion in the Old Testament? Starts with the J, ends with Jerusalem. <laughs> Jerusalem, correct, Danny. To the rescue, yes, Jerusalem. So David actually makes Mount Zion his capital city in 2 Samuel 6. But by the time you get to the New Testament and we sing songs about Mount Zion, it just means we're marching to Zion. It's the dwelling place of God where God's people will be with him. So the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And who is with the lamb? Who does John see there? 144,000. We've seen this before. What do they have on them in verse 1? Whose name, What I should say, in verse 1 do they have written on them? All right. Yeah, this is clearly in contrast. You see how chapter 13 ends? Chapter divisions weren't always here. So if you ignore the chapter division and you're reading down through verse 13, hey, you can't eat or drink or buy or sell without this mark. Jump right into 14. I saw 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. They don't have the mark of the beast. They've got the name of the Son and the Father written in their foreheads. Right where you would normally expect to see the mark of the beast, 666, you see the name of Jesus Christ and the Father. So these individuals are aligned with him. This mark is evidence that, hey, they belong to God. But here's something to think about. If the marks aren't visible, and we would, I would argue that they're not, how would you know who had which mark? How would you know who had the mark of Revelation 14 or you, if you had the mark of 13 with the, um, with the beast? I guess if your ribs were showing and you were hungry, people would say you didn't have the mark of the beast, you didn't eat anything. But outside of that, how would you know what mark people have? The tree by the fruit it bears. Which means what? The good fruit. You're going to have to look at how people are living. Anybody could say, I'm marked by the lamb. I stand with the folks in, on Mount Zion. Anybody could say that. But the only way you would really know is based on how individuals are living. Who are the 144,000 and where have we seen them before? Who are they? This is from Revelation chapter what? Not five, not six, but seven. Yeah, seven. Revelation seven. The 144,000, we talked about it back then. You can go back and look at this, but it's in Revelation chapter seven. And we said that these folks represent the Christians who've been redeemed from the earth and washed their themselves and made them white, made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. How do you know, based on what you read in verses 3 through 5, that this number of individuals is not to be taken literally? If this number of the 144,000, we've got friends that sometimes take this number literally, how do you know that's not the case in verses 3 through 5? They sing a new song, by the way. That new song just is about being redeemed throughout the Bible. The new song means a song people sing in response to God's salvation. But how do you know that these 144,000 are not a literal group of 144,000? If they were, then just notice the text. Look at verse 4. What do you see there about them? Just read to me what you've got. Give me them one at a time. What do you got in verse 4? Not defiled themselves with women. So if this 144,000 is a literal number in heaven, there are no women in heaven. Because this is clearly talking about men. So there wouldn't be any women. What else? They're virgins. Nobody married in heaven. Peter's out. And a host of other people are out. If this number's literal, and people that would press it would have to follow the evidence that way, it would have to be only men in heaven, only virgin men in heaven, no women, nobody who's been married. And then it also says what? 
They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they've been redeemed from mankind. So if it's not literal, and it's not, what is John trying to tell us about these folks? That they have lived what kind of lives? Faithful. Faithful lives. The Bible sometimes talks about the church as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Paul tells the Corinthians, I've espoused you, the church, as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. It just means you're pure. Having defiled themselves with women doesn't mean that these individuals never were in a marital relationship or engaged in sexual activity. It means they have kept themselves spiritually pure. One of the ways the Bible talks about spiritual unfaithfulness is it calls it adultery. You're not being faithful to God. These folks have been. Look at the end of verse 5. It says that they are what? There's no lie in their mouth and they are blameless. Or what What do we have? Without fault. Without fault. What does it mean to be blameless in the Bible? Does it mean that a person's perfect? What's the difference between being blameless and being perfect? Who can be perfect? Nobody. Who needs to be blameless? Everybody. Okay, so y'all know it. So now tell me, what's the difference between being perfect and blameless? What's the difference? Okay, blameless is definitely somebody who's washed in the blood. You're not held Okay, you're not held responsible for things that you should be doing. Yep, that's a part of it. That are wrong. Somebody? Forgiven. You're walking in his life. Yeah, there is nothing in this person's life. The Bible talks about elders being blameless, but then it just talks about Christians as a whole. Colossians 1.22, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. When the Bible says we should be blameless, it doesn't mean we never sin. But it does mean there's nothing in this person's life, not a sin that they know of, that's in their peer view. Okay, I've done this, and I'm not going to own up to it. I refuse to make matters right when I haven't done what I should. Blameless means this individual is not in any known transgression against God with a blatant refusal to repent. I'm just going to live my own way. But so long as you're walking in the light, you know you've made mistakes, you fess up and own up, the Bible says you're blameless. And a blameless person, according to God, retains what percentage of their sin? Zero. First John 1 7, the blood of Jesus Christ as we walk in the light cleanses us from how much of our sin? All of it. All of it. Because you're in the light and you're being honest about sin. Saying the same thing about your sin that God is. And so we can't be blameless. We can't be perfect, but God does want us to be blameless. And that's what these folks are described as being. Revelation 14, 6 through 13 says, and I've got to finish this because some of y'all are like, I've got to get this sheet filled out. I know, I, know, I know the type. I know who I'm dealing with here. All right, verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice saying from heaven, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. All right, I think there are three angels here. Yes, yeah, so angel number one, his message is... 
He's got an eternal gospel and that God should be glorified. That's what he says in verse 6. In contrast to the whole world glorifying the sea beast, this angel says, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And then at the end it says, He made heaven and earth. Throughout the Bible, we're told to worship God. But one of the things that biblical writers in Old and New Testament always circle back around to when they say, hey, worship God, and then they say, for this reason, sometimes God saved us, yes. God's benefits and his gifts, yes. But the one that's probably at the top of the list, if you ran all the references on commands to worship God, would be the fact that God created everything. It's the favorite way for biblical writers to say, hey, worship God, he created everything. Psalm 33 and verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He commanded and it was done. He spoke and it stood firm. And they'll say, hey, worship God because he created everything. That's this first angel. Angel number two says Babylon has fallen. Who is Babylon here? Rome, yes. From Genesis 11, when they try to build the tower of Babylon that reaches to the heavens, everybody in the world is either in Genesis 11 trying to make a name for themselves, make themselves great, build their own tower to heaven, or following God's way where God says through Abraham's seed, I'll bless you. But here it's being announced that the Tower of Babylon has fallen. Angel number three says those who receive the mark of the beast will receive God's wrath. And so it'll be poured out on them in full strength. This goes back to something Andy mentioned earlier about the Romans basically stirring up, storing up wrath for themselves. God's going to bring it back on them and punish them. These three angels, they say, hey, glorify God, Babylon is falling. Those who receive the mark of the beast will receive God's wrath. Is this good news that people are going to be destroyed for rebelling against God? Is it good news? Should Christians rejoice when bad things happen to bad people that have opposed God? Yes or no? Andy gave me this. That's history. Andy normally knows. He says no. He says we're shaking. What do y'all got? Show of hands for yes, we should rejoice. Show of hands for no. Show of hands for I'm scared. <laughs> Listen, um, it's right to do this within context. I know Proverbs 24, 17 through 18 says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. If you do, God will bring it back on you. But the reality is, if you've ever been abused, if you've ever been mistreated, if you've ever suffered any injustice, you are waiting on God to vindicate things and make it right. People that haven't faced that, they're like, well, I mean, wicked things. No, in the Bible, when wicked people get what's coming to them from God, we don't take vengeance into our own hands. But when it actually comes from God, more than saying, well, okay, the Bible expects righteous people to join in chorus with heaven and say, it's about time. And for Christians, this was great news. The wrath of God was being poured out, and Christians had a right to rejoice. There'll be another song of rejoicing in 18 when Babylon finally falls. Andy, go ahead. Thing in 12 and 13 is 
make sure that you endure as a Christian and blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. What does it mean to die in the Lord? And why is there a blessing attached to it? What does it mean to die in the Lord? Remember chapter 13, if you don't get the mark, you might be killed, you can't eat, you can't buy or sell. And John says, hey, hang in there, Christian, in chapter 14. You're on Mount Zion. Babylon's fallen, the eternal gospel's preached. Everybody that got that mark is going to be destroyed. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. What does it mean to die in the Lord? This is like a softball. This is an easy one. To die as a what? And by the way, the only people that are blessed in death are Christians. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. And then John says, you rest from your labors and your works do follow them. When I was in Florida, I preached a sermon one time. And I told the people, and I guess I'll tell y'all. And y'all can say this about me too, depending on how life works out. I used to tell them, listen, don't live in such a way that you expect me to lie at your funeral. Because I won't. And I'm not going to live in such a way that you have to lie at my funeral. Because at the end, we'll be all that we've been. That's it. The only people that will be blessed are those that die in the Lord. And so we want to live in such a way that our works, John says, your works will follow you. We will die. We will rise just like we died. If we were faithful to God in our lives, we'll rise and God will say, well done. If we weren't, though, it won't be reversed. These Christians that died in the Lord, they were they were justified. All right, we'll stop there. There's one more se section in 14, but we, we got pretty far today. Any comments or questions as we finish the class? All right, if you want to keep your sheet, because you're a sheet person, keep it for next week so you can put in these from 14 through 20. But next week, I'm going to have a different sheet for 15. But thanks for a good Bible class. Thanks for the comments and participation.